It's time for Making It Personal, a personalized SC podcast. Let's jump into today's episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Making It Personal podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Fersner, and today I am joined by a very special guest. All the way from the West Coast, we have joining us Dr. John Spencer. We're so excited to have you with us today. For those who may not know Dr. Spencer, I'm going to give him an opportunity to introduce himself to you all, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Yeah, thanks. And um, I'm a former middle school teacher. I'm a current college professor. Um, I love this idea of personalized learning, student choice, voice. So I'm super excited to be um, on this podcast. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about your teacher story. Um, All of us have like a reason why we got into the profession. So start us from the beginning. Why did you become a teacher and what led you to the work of student-centered learning in the first place? Yeah, I think for me, it really began as a student. You know, the first time I ever had voice and choice in learning was this year-long National History Day project. I had these two amazing teachers, uh, Mrs. Smoot and Mr. Darrow. And um, it, it was really the first time I owned the process of everything from project management and research to designing my own, you know, developing my own script because there was a presentation piece to um, just interviewing people and, and talking to them. And again, it was a year long project. It, it was on one hand kind of nerve wracking to have that much freedom, to have that much choice. Um, There's always this assumption that kids are just going to love it. And I I did love it, but I also like hated it at times, right? Um, To have that productive struggle, um, all the soft skills that I developed in that. And I think that's when I um, really owned the learning myself as a student. Um, And then when I was in college, um, I majored in education, but I was um, active in the nonprofit world. So I worked for an inner city faith-based nonprofit. And I thought I would be in that realm, not public education. So I, I, I felt like if I'm going to run a tutoring and mentoring program, I need to know how the system works, how the policy works, that kind of stuff. So I just loved learning about learning, but I, I, I never thought like, well, I'm going to be in the classroom, right? Because I thought this is where I want to be doing program design and um, yeah, the whole nonprofit world. And during that phase, that's kind of where I was introduced to certain things like design thinking um, and, um, you know, creative frameworks that empower people. Um, But it was not in the K-12 setting. And then as a teacher, uh, I just fell in love with it as a student teacher. Um, So I began my student teaching, my first practicums, and I think it was like, the first day. And it wasn't an easy day. I will say that too. It was not an easy day. Um, It was my first day of student teaching. And I just thought this is where I'm supposed to be. So, you know, I, I, all of these, you know, people in the program that I was working with, they would say things like, I knew I wanted to be a teacher since I was in the third grade and I would play pretend teach. And that was not me. I thought I would be in the nonprofit world. And then instead I just was like, this is where I belong. This is, this is it. And I knew that that was my space. Um, and then for the next 12 years, I taught uh, middle school. I taught first uh, social studies and reading intervention, and then I taught self-contained. So all subjects. And then I ended up at the very end teaching one half of the day doing STEM and the other half doing journalism. 
And so that's my K-12 journey. And really the whole idea of student-centered learning and personalized learning in within that story was a really gradual process. Um, you know, it was conquering my fears as a teacher. It was getting over, you know, what if, what if the scores get low or what if people don't like it or, or what if the classroom management doesn't work and all these fears I had in my first year of teaching and then realizing we could go project-based and do some small project and then giving them more ownership over the project. And then eventually doing some student-centered assessments and letting them own more of that process and eventually letting them help design the physical space and come up with the class norms and procedures. And it just was a very slow process each year of incrementally sort of giving up some more control and giving them more choice. I love that you say that last piece, because that's something that we always tell educators that we work with. Um, our mm-hmm. motto is um, think big, start small, but yes. scale fast. And the thing that's very daunting with this work sometimes is sometimes um, we look at like a teacher who's, you know, in their fourth or fifth year in this work and, you know, they they have all the things happening and then it's like, how do I even get started? But I love that you said that you started small, but then every year you just kind of add it on. That's awesome. So why should we be shifting to a a truly student-centered model? And why is that something we should be talking about right now? My first thought is, you know, a lot of these ideas of student-centered learning are, they're old, you know, they're they're not necessarily new. The idea of project-based learning, for example, came out in the early 1900s. Um, If you think about Dewey and what he wrote about, you know, progressive education, um, these are not old ideas. And in a lot of ways, a good portion of America's education really was student-centered for a long time. And then they kind of pulled back post-war and went more traditionalist as sort of a, a reaction behaviorism of the of the 50s and 60s. So I think the thing to remember is like none of this is truly, truly new. But what is new is the context has changed, right? So in the 50s and 60s, Preparing people for a workforce really was a lot of times about compliance. It was about, you know, um, people working, whether it was in factories or in a corporate landscape, uh, it was a lot of like, we need rule followers, we need compliance, we need that kind of stuff. There was a lot of fear involved, right? It was the whole Cold War. But I think what we see now is that with automation, with AI, with all these big changes, you know, what What will our students actually need in sort of the new economy? And the new economy is not that new anymore, right? Like it's kind of, but it's getting newer and newer. And the, I would argue, what are the things computers can't do? And it's collaborate, um, connect with others, being human-centered, being empathetic. And I would argue, you know, if, if you believe in you know, preparing students for the future, they're going to need to have all those skills. And then just taking ownership of it, um, you know, purely from an academic level, I think we saw during the pandemic, the lack of engagement was really a lack of empowerment. It was a lack of self-direction with students not being self-starters, not being self-managers. So on a secondary level, outside of preparing them for the future, just for the now, we know that when they're self-directed, when they own the learning, there's higher engagement, there's higher focus, there's higher commitment, there's that productive struggle. And in the end, on a purely academic level, they achieve better academically. So I I look at it and say, if your goal is academics, they're going to achieve better. If your goal is um, 
jobs, it's going to prepare them for a better job. And then if your goal, like me, I really, my focus is always, I want to see passionate lifelong learners that is student centered. You know, I want, I want students it was like, if, if we're reading, I want you to fall in love with reading so that you read on your own outside of school in the same way though, I want you to fall in love with math and science and learn how to think like a mathematician and a scientist. So there was this other side of like, it just makes life more fun to be student centered. Yes. I love that. I love that. And I, I also like that you touched on tending to that motivation side. One thing that we heard a lot of over the pandemic was that students just weren't motivated. And we Mm. know that in this work, when we empower students and we give them choice and we give them ownership, that aids in that motivation piece, which kind of leads me to my next question. What does an empowered learner look like to you? So I think an empowered learner, it's going to look different for, you know, every student, you're going to have some who are um, definitely more linear, some that are more connective, some that are um, a little bit messy and chaotic and some that are super organized. And so I think the first thing is like on a very profound level, an empowered learner is the freedom to be who you are, you know? Um, And that means sometimes needing quiet or needing loud, you know, it's really going to be different for every student. But then there are these common pieces that I think are true, which is having initiative, right? Being a self-starter, being a self-manager, really having that metacognition, the ability to think about thinking, um, knowing how to collaborate with each other, um, being creative, being a divergent thinker, um, being a good listener. I think it's a lot of those things. Um, And and folks will call them soft skills, but, you know, I, I think they're really, really hard skills. And they're the ones that ultimately will trip you up in the future, you know, rather than um, like you can always relearn matrices and and how they work. It's really hard to unlearn the inability to be empathetic toward others, right? That takes a lot of (laughs) unlearning. Whereas if you learn that and really um, do that well, I think, I think you have that for a lifetime, right? So it's these lifetime transferable skills. Absolutely. Now let's switch over from, I guess, students as learners to adults as learners. Um, What are some strategies or ideas that you've seen um, on the professional development lens that offer empowerment to teachers so that they can, you know, model the model for students? So I think, you know, one, one of the thoughts I have is when teachers get a chance to engage in their own professional learning in a way that mirrors what we want for students, they're more likely to implement it, right? So I think about, for example, years ago, I was doing my master's in educational technology and I had to do a capstone project. And my capstone project was redesigning our professional development. So we had weekly 90-minute staff meetings, uh, which was a lot. It's a lot of PD time that just was not actually used well. It was, it was almost entirely focused on like, how do we improve the parking lot? You know, it's like not, not, there was no PD involved. So I said, you know, let's do this personalized professional development where there are multiple tracks and multiple formats. And one of the things that I found, for example, was I did a tech one that involved like, um, it was basically blogging, podcasting, video creation. And when they learned about blogging, podcasting, and video creation itself, and then tried to lesson plan for it, they really didn't implement it. But when they created 
their own professional development blog, their own, you know, it's called a professional educator blog. And then I asked them to co-create a podcast with, with somebody on a topic in their discipline, but not necessarily, you know, matching what, what they're teaching in the moment. What I found was the act of creating and making your own blog and podcast and videos themselves first, allow them to turn around and implement it with students. So I think a lot of it is, do they get that ownership? Do they actually get to create anything in their PD? And the fun thing about this was we had a rotation process where different teachers taught different things to other teachers mm -hmm. on campus based on their expertise. And it was, it was choice-based. You had a menu. And so um, at any given time, there would be a short one-off single day things. There was uh, the option of a quarter long course, basically weekly course. There was the option of book studies. There were some online options that they could do. And so there was a choice in format, a choice in time and a choice in, in topic. Hmm. And um, I immediately saw that when teachers owned the process of not only choosing their PD, but also they were empowered to, to teach and co-teach to one another, that people were getting excited about our Thursday afternoons instead of dreading it, right? And so I think it's a lot of that. And I'll be honest with you, there were a lot of things that are probably best practices that we didn't do. We didn't tie it to professional learning goals. We didn't create professional development plans. There were a lot of things we could have done eventually. We didn't you know, directly evaluate how this piece leads to that piece in student learning. There are a lot of things we could have done, but a great starting point was just giving teachers a choice hmm. in their professional learning. We've seen some really cool examples of that happening in the state as well. So it's cool that that work is happening as well, because it's true when leadership and um, when teachers are able to see it and experience it for themselves, it makes it easier for them to kind of recreate that experience for students, for sure. I'm curious. So when you say you've seen it, like, what are some cool practices that you've seen in your state in terms of, of, of teachers being empowered with their own learning? Yeah. So um, I can't remember the name of the school, but there was one school when you were describing that model of professional learning. Um, there was a school in Rock Hill, South Carolina that actually did professional learning and they had like a template to where teachers had an option of, like you said, like either choosing a one day PD, some kind of continuous PD, some online version of a PD. They just had multiple options that were in different modalities, like you were saying, and to celebrate their learning or to encourage them to continue on. Like, I think whenever they completed their PD, they like exit out on the box and then they were able to like celebrate or get a badge mm -hmm. signifying that they had completed XYZ. So I thought that was pretty cool. And definitely like a far cry from like the 90 minute yeah. Thursday meeting. Like, <laughs> uh -huh. I And I love that idea of like badging and gamification. There's so many, I mean, my, one of the thoughts is just like, we immediately jump into like personalized professional development plans. And then it becomes this like formal process with, yeah. you know, and that, and some of that is necessary and I get it. It could be tied to your evaluations or whatever, but make it fun. Mm -hmm. Gamify it. Like you said, do celebrations. And there, there really was something about tapping into the capacity and expertise of your staff itself and asking, you know, what are they experts on? And then letting them really run with it. 
Yeah, I think that that's like the best thing going because oftentimes we do see a lot of leadership that gets stuck into the accountability piece of like, how are we going to hold our staff accountable for X, Y, Z? But then, you know, you lose that creative side, you lose that ownership and that buy-in, and then you can't really maximize the potential of what something could be. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. educators, we know you all are working hard day in and day out to meet all your students' needs. The SCDE Office of Personalized Learning wants to celebrate you and the work you're doing. We want to help tell your stories, share your processes, and the artifacts you create as you work to put students at the center of their own learning, but we can't do it without you. So send us your celebrations, stories, processes, or artifacts to personalizedlearning at ed sc.gov, tag us on Twitter at Personalized SC, or reach out to your Office of Personalized Learning Regional Coach at personalizedsc.ed.sc.gov. We can't wait to see what you send our way. So what are some barriers that you hear in the field when it comes to making the shift to student-centered, personalized learning? And what might be some go-to solutions for those barriers? You know, I think in in the past, the biggest barrier really was test scores. Mm -hmm. I think test scores are still a barrier, but I don't think people are feeling quite the same pressure about the test as as other uh, pressures. I think what I'm hearing more now lately, and again, this depends on the context, is a fear of how parents will perceive it. You know, um, you're not helping my child, the the sort of like snowplow parents or helicopter parents, you know, letting them struggle would be a necessity. um, And and that's hard, right? So some of it is parent and community pressures. Some of it is, um, you know, if you still have really scripted curriculum, you know, what subject area do you do this in? For example, if you've got that K3 teacher, you probably have a super structured math and and reading curriculum that you can't provide a ton of choice in. And then I think some of the behaviors have just been harder coming out of the pandemic. And so it's like, well, I'm not sure giving them more freedom is the answer. And the truth is, it is, it's just very counterintuitive, right? So again, going back to solutions, the behavior piece, having a really solid classroom management plan connected to choice makes a difference and really thinking through how do I communicate expectations to to students about this. But a lot of misbehavior comes from like a drive for autonomy and freedom and choice. And if they feel that they have some freedom and choice, I found that they're much more, students are much more likely to actually follow the procedures that we have. So I kind of think that that's a solution. In the issue of say student achievement, which is still a little bit of a barrier, um, I think we can say, let's make sure it's tied to the standards. And if the student engagement is really high, given the choice and personalization that you're doing, I think you're going to find that the scores are going to be fine. Uh, And there's a lot of research to back up how things like project-based learning, um, there's a bunch of new research that was actually during the pandemic that came out on how it can lead to increases in student achievement. But then I think the community aspect 
is just being smart about how we communicate these things, knowing what words could be miscommunicated, you know? So for example, when, when we did um, a project that was service learning based and students really looked at, tackled a community issue, we built it on empathy. They did needs assessments. If I did that same project, I would be more careful with some of the wording that we use, you know, because of how loaded certain terms are, right? And um, I would still do the same project, the same heart of the project, but just the, the parent piece has become huge in terms of concerns. The other piece that I would say with, with parents though, is after we think through that piece, which every teacher knows their community best, communicating to parents why you're doing what you're doing and the goal of it. So for example, if your goal with student choice is to develop resilience, communicate with the parents what resilience is, why it matters, how it's going to help them. I always give the example of in the past, there was a ladder and this formula was, you know, start out at school, do well at school, move on to university, get a good grade at university, and then climb the corporate ladder and work somewhere for 30 years. The ladder's gone. And in its place is a maze. So I ask parents, how do we navigate the maze? What skills do they need? And parents, regardless of where they are, will say things like they need to listen to other people, learn how to listen. They need to be humble. They need to um, be creative in how they navigate the maze. They need to collaborate with others to navigate that maze. And I talk about how the traditional way prepares you for this ladder but it doesn't prepare you for the maze. So what do we need? And suddenly it's like, well, maybe some voice, some choice, some, and then we really get them on board with, if this is the case, the latter is going to be frustrating. Your kid might be angry at times. Let's talk about the social emotional element. Um, and there's actually a really great book that's going to be coming out in the next couple of months from um, Matinga Regatz and Mike Cackley on PBL and SEL, you know, and, and really thinking through those SEL pieces. And again, what are the soft skills? What are the key skills? What are the essential skills? And bring parents and guardians into that dialogue. And I think when that happens, we can get them on board. Hmm, I love all those solutions and examples. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my, my next question for you is, if you had to give a teacher who might be listening um, some advice as to how to get started, or maybe they started their journey towards student-centered learning, but because of the pandemic and all the craziness that was going on, kind of those things kind of fell by the wayside and they want to kind of re-engage. What advice might you give them um, for how to jump back in and, and get started? Are there any like go-to strategies coming out of the pandemic into like next year that you might suggest a teacher use? Yeah, I think... Like I loved what you brought up with like start small and scale up, right? You know, think big, start small, scale up. I love that concept. So I would say the same thing. Start really small. Um, treat the small thing that you start as an experiment. So if it doesn't work, the, the success criteria for you is did you try it, right? Every other area of teaching you're constantly thinking of, did it work? Did it work? Did it work? This is your one area where you say, I'm successful if I tried it. And that's that's all I'm going to do is try. And it may work for me. It may not. Um, so I would say start small, treat it as an experiment, um, build on what you're already doing. So ask yourself, what am I already doing 
to empower my students? How am I already giving them voice and choice? And so if you start, if you tell yourself, I'm going to start small, I'm going to begin with where it already is there. Then the next step that I would do is ask yourself, what am I doing for students that they could be doing for themselves? And just make a big list, right? So you now have a list of the areas where they're already empowered. And now you're just saying, here are some things, big list of things where I'm doing things that they could be doing for themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And now based on that list, choose one small thing. Now, what that one small thing could be up to you. It could be that you say, I'm still going to be a little more traditional, but I'm going to implement um, peer assessment and self-assessment. I'm going to have them own the assessment process. So I'm going to do the 20 minute peer feedback process. I have a whole um, assessment toolkit. If people want to download it, I can show you the information, but you know, some templates that you could use some student surveys, some self-reflections. I'm going to start there, right? Maybe what you say is, letting them choose the topic. So I'm going to try for the first time ever, every time they do warm up, giving them three options on the warm up, And then once a week, I'm going to do one choice menu and we'll start there, right? Maybe it's um, something small, like in language arts, we have a packed curriculum, but we are going to spend 20 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day doing free reading, right? And read whatever you want during that time. Whatever it may be, Again, you choose that one small thing and you say, I'm going to start there and then I'm going to treat it as an experiment. And if it didn't work, what's a similar thing I can try? And you just keep trying those small things. It could be a a fun little 40 minute maker project that's super hands-on. Whatever it may be, you you, you say, I'm going to start small based on that experiment and then build on the stuff that's working. Now, in the same token, what advice might you give school leadership who um, sees that um, personalized learning is um, is what we should be doing in education? And they had that vision for their school and they want to lead this work with teachers in their building. What advice might you give them for how to approach leading and scaling this work from a leadership perspective? So I think the very first thing leaders need to be able to do is really give teachers the permission to have failed experiments, right? So if if you say, um, we want you to fail forward, if, if you say all that kind of stuff, you have to be very explicit and say, when it comes to this zone, I will judge your success on, did you try? Did you take a creative risk? Um, this will This section will not be the lesson that I come in and when I evaluate you, right? When I come in to do your formal evaluation, it won't be that. I'm not looking for, try it on this time, right? So they really have to communicate. There is permission and they have to make it very explicit, right? I want to see this. If it doesn't work, that's okay. We're going to talk about it openly. We're going to have frank conversations about it, but I want to see this happen. And then I think they really have to model it for, for staff, you know? I I truly believe in the idea that like empowered teachers empower students. Mm -hmm. So do they get ownership over their professional learning? Are they getting the freedom to help design the systems of the school? Um, Are they, do they feel heard and listened to when it comes to, you know, their own voice in terms of the, the school community is the vision for personalized learning and student choice, just leadership's vision, or does the whole school have that vision? And um, 
I think when that's the case, when the fear is gone and when they feel empowered themselves, they'll be that much more likely to make it happen. Now, after that, it gets complicated. It might involve coaching. It might involve conversations. It might, you know, and that's where leaders know their, know their staff the best. But I think those two pieces, if they're in place, makes it far easier to implement at a school-wide level. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much again for joining us today. This has been such a, a great conversation. I know our audience is soaking it all up. The last thing I have for you is if we have any folks listening and they want to get in touch with you or they want to follow your journey and hear from you, you have some amazing books, one of which we sing your praises about all the time. It's called A Book Empowered. And if you've had any connection with the Office of Personalized Learning, then you know that we've put this book in your hands. But what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, I mean, feel free to just email me, john at spencerauthor.com. If you check out my uh, my website, spencerauthor.com, you'll find a lot of different resources. There's free downloads. If you enjoy kind of learning through like a, a video process, um, I have a YouTube channel where I explain a lot of these ideas and like little sketch videos that I do. So, uh, and and you can find that YouTube channel at spencervideos.com. So I would say the biggest thing is just go to spencerauthor.com and you'll find a lot of those different articles, free resources, things like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. We'll be right back to close things out. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Making It Personal. Connect with the Office of Personalized Learning by visiting our website, personalizesc.ed.sc.gov. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, share with a friend, and tune in for a new episode every month. We'll catch you next time on Making It Personal. See ya!